0: Good morning. I was thinking this week how much I love dentists. How many of you have a love relationship with your dentist? You know, preaching is a difficult job, and I was, I was thinking in light of that about my dentist. I was thinking, you know, the, the two jobs are rather similar. Nobody really looks forward to hearing the preacher lambast them about their sin, Nobody really enjoys going to a dentist and having them scrape around and and dig and and drill and and extract problems and and uh, make them squirm in their chair. But I was I was thinking on rare occasions dentists are actually good for you. And they they actually give you a good report sometimes. And so this morning What I want to do is have you think of me as a dentist, only it's a good day this morning. It's a good day. You should love your dentist. He is good for you. And the converse is true. You should love your pastor. He is good for you. Now, preaching is difficult, and I was thinking about it this week. Preaching to believers is even harder in some ways than preaching to unbelievers. I assume most of you in this room know the Lord already. And the, the temptation for us as preachers is always to, I don't know, scrape around, dig around, bring a sense of conviction, cause a person to doubt just a little bit so that we can ferret out some measure of unbelief, perhaps. Maybe we can find a make-believer in the crowd who's, who's really not a believer at all. Kind of like the Spanish Inquisition, you know. (laughs) Confess! But at the same time, beloved, I've been thinking about this. You know, we as believers, we, we really should have a measure of assurance, shouldn't we? I mean, we are ministers of the new covenant, are we not? And so what I wanted to do with you this morning is think in terms of just blessing you with a sense of assurance from the Word of God that we can know that we know that we know because God's Word tells us we can know. And so what I want to do this morning is encourage you. God has a hold on you, beloved, and He will not let you go. He will not let you go. And so in that, we can rejoice. And we can find evidence of that in the Scriptures. And so what I want you to do is turn to 1 John this morning and let's just be encouraged from the Word of God. Really, over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the issue of assurance. Uh, this week and, and the next two weeks. So in First John, just a background on this epistle. I mean, John has structured and written his argumentation in this book around three attributes of God. There are three defining characteristics of God, if you will. Uh, The first is that God is light, the second is that God is righteous or truth, and the third one is that God is love. And we see that pretty plainly in the book, they're direct statements that God is this, God is this. And so John has written this letter around the idea that we can know that we have come to know God if... Based upon our response to these attributes of God. God is light. And so the reality is, if you are walking in the light, you can have a measure of assurance that you know God and love him. God is righteous. God is truth. And so if you are doing and practicing the truth, you can have a measure of assurance that you know God. God is love. John actually says that two times. God is love. And so if you know God, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a natural outflowing. These things are natural outflowings of your knowledge of who God is. If you really know him, then you will want to be like him as your children, as his children. So on that basis, we're going to look at, at those three things. And this week, in particular, uh, well, over the, over the course of the next three weeks, I should probably say this, we're, we're basically looking at three tangible evidences, if you will. Three tangible evidence, things you can grab onto so that your assurance of salvation will be strengthened. I really want you to walk out of here this morning having some sense that you can be assured that you are in the faith. And those three evidences are walking in the light, wrestling for the truth, and willing to love. And we will look at those over the course of the next three weeks. In particular this morning, this week, we're talking about what it means to walk in the light. And so if you will turn to 1 John 1, if you're not there already, I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 5. I don't have time in messages like this. This is obviously going to be more topical and less drilling down into individual verses as much as I We'd love to do that. We simply don't have time. But let me just say this morning, there are are three elements to walking in the light. So let's pick up the reading here in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am not writing these things to you so that you I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only not only for ours, I'm sorry, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So, again, we're looking at three elements to walking in the light. And the first, I guess, what I would like you to see is in verse 5 there, and that is the premise, the premise of walking in the light. The premise is very obvious. God is light. God is light. Uh, The converse, by the way, is not true. Light is not God. God is light, though. And so we need to understand that. He says, in him there is no darkness at all. And this literally reads a little more emphatically. In the Greek, it would say, God, light he is, and darkness in him, not it is at all. And so the idea here is a, a totality that there isn't a hint of darkness in God. Period. He is light, and there isn't a shred of darkness in him. So, you know, the apostles... Uh, John saying, "This we have seen, uh, what we have heard, we're proclaiming to you so that you can have fellowship with us." And what what did they see and hear from Christ? Uh, was John one eighteen tells us that Christ explained God to them. No one has seen God the Father, but they but Christ had, and so Christ came. And he literally exegeted the Father to the apostles. And so what they are now teaching the church is that God is light. There is no darkness in him. And that's really not a a new concept, is it? I mean, when you think about your Old Testament, it's really not a new concept. God has always been known as being light. You can think of Genesis 1-3, right? In the beginning... God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? But no sun. I mean, the place where we get our light from, sun and moon, right? Sun and moon weren't created till when? Day four. Day four. So where did the light come from? Where did the light come from? It came from God Himself. Uh, Psalm 27 1. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Isaiah 60, verse 1, verse 19, verse 20. You see there that in Messiah's kingdom, God himself would be Israel's light. We see the same thing over in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Verses verse 22, five. Right. There's there will be no need for the sun anymore or for lights because God will illuminate his people. That's what the scriptures say. Habakkuk three, four. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. A couple of ways you could take that, either in his right hand is the power or it's hidden in the light where his right hand is. Either way, it gets you to the same point, and that is that God is light. And John is thinking of morality here in particular. In particular, God has no moral darkness in him at all. Uh, Light and morality are linked together. And, and for this, I, I need you to turn over to the book of James quickly. Just turn to the left. And the argument uh, that was happening in the church in James, remember this is the first epistle of the New Testament. The uh, Jewish believers are experiencing trials and difficulties. And in the midst of that, some of them are tempted to ascribe evil to God saying that God is tempting us to sin by bringing these trials upon us. And so James is addressing that issue here, and he says, no, God doesn't tempt anybody to sin, but, verse 14, "Uh, you're tempted and carried away by your own lust. That's the reality. But what I want you to see is James 1.17. It says, every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Same theology. God is light. There's not even a shadow, literally a shadow of a turning. There's the, God doesn't even cast a shadow. There's no darkness in him at all. He's pure light, and there is Uh, In the argumentation in James, there's no deception, there's no deceit, there's no moral darkness with God. That's the point. So in 1 John, uh, God tempts no one to sin, and in particular, there is no moral darkness in God. And so what John is saying is that the basis for any fellowship at all, any uh, koinonia, if you will, is that God himself is light. And if you want to be in fellowship with God, you have to be in that light. And if you want to have fellowship with other believers, we all have to be in the light. Because God is light. That's what he's saying. That's the premise. It's, the, it's a foundational belief. It's, it's the basis. It's the premise. It's, it's the root of any and all fellowship among believers. If we want fellowship with each other, we have to walk in the light together. It's interesting. I look back at the text with me. It's interesting the way John has phrased this. There's a, a positive statement, a negative statement, and then sort of the totality statement. Uh, he is light. There is no darkness. And then the at all phrase. It's, it's a positive. It's a negative. And just in case you weren't sure about it, let me just emphasize Not at all, okay? He comes at it from all three angles. And so what he's saying, I guess, is that uh, God is pure light. There's no darkness. And the implication is that if we want to be in fellowship with him, we need to be in the light too. We need to be in the light too. Uh, The Apostle Peter says this. He said, God has granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them we might become... Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So, what is the divine nature? What's the premise? Light. God is light. And if you want to be in fellowship with Him and with the church, you must walk in the light. So, the reason I say all that is any hope of assurance that I could give you from the word of God this morning is based on that fact. If you want assurance, you must understand first and foremost that God is light. Second element is your profession. You see that there in verses 6 and following. We're going to run through these uh, one at a time. But what I want you to see in here is that there are really three errors that people... um, made in John's day, these three um, spurious professions, if you will, characterize the false teachers of John's day. And so we see these uh, in order here as you follow verses 6 and following. This is what the false teachers were saying. This is what was creeping into the church, if you will. And there's there's sort of a discernible structure here, a discernible pattern to these Three statements, if you look at the text, um, beginning in verse 6, what you see is there's this, uh, grammatically, what we call it is a, a protasis and an apodosis, okay? And I know that's technical language, but what we're really talking about here is there's a false claim, which is followed up by a result derived from that false claim, and then there is uh, an assurance, if you will, that lies after that. And, and you'll see this as we go through here. Uh, the first error is what I'm calling profession without practice, and that's in verses 6 and 7. So somebody would be deluding themselves if they were to say such things. And the reality here is he says, if we, each one of these statements starts with the phrase, you see it in verse 6, and verse 8, and verse 10. If we say, if we say, if we say, you see that? They're false professions. These are errors uh, and we don't want to miss this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, then the result is we lie. We lie. We lie by our actions. Uh, There's no way around it. We do not literally do the truth, he says. The assurance comes in verse 7, though. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we profess that we have fellowship with God or that we know him, but we're still walking around in the darkness, uh, then there's something inconsistent about our testimony. Remember the premise, God is light. And so if you're living in the darkness, it's a misnomer, it's an inconsistency. A non sequitur, I guess. So the idea here is habitual sin. Each of these three statements in verse six is the idea of habitual sin. Verse eight is the idea of having a sin nature, and in verse ten is the idea of present ongoing sin in your life. And so he's saying, "If you deny these three realities, uh, there's a good chance you don't you don't know God. So the concept of walking you know, is a common metaphor in the Bible for for how you conduct yourself, how you live your life, right? It's not the idea of literally walking. It's the idea of conduct. It's how you walk and how you keep on walking. Lots of Old Testament metaphors for that, right? You think of the book of Proverbs, right? The fool walks down to the harlot's house, but her steps lead to Sheol, right? There's the idea of, of once you go down to her, you're off the path of life, and you're no longer walking on the path of life, and you are now headed for ruin. And so the idea of walking is not a new concept. Paul uses that in Ephesians 4 as well. Um, We're to walk in the light. It's a present tense verb, and it carries the idea of, of just continually walking, keep on walking, conducting yourself, living your life this way. And so John says that if you have the profession without the practice, you're lying. You're lying and you're not doing the truth. Uh, Actions speak louder than words and you're lying by your actions. It's like a guy who says, I love my wife, but he's a serial adulterer. Would that be consistent? Would that be consistent with his profession that he loves his wife if he's out cheating on her continually? Uh, The answer is obviously no. His actions betray his true feelings. So the point is saying one thing but doing another, saying you are in fellowship with God, yet living like a pagan doesn't confer a whole lot of assurance. I can't assure you from the Scripture, and the Scriptures won't assure you from the Scriptures. You can have no assurance if you're living that kind of life, filled with hypocrisy and sin. But the assurance comes in the next verse, as I said, verse 7. On the contrary, if you are walking, and the idea again is present active, if you are continually walking in the light, as he himself is in the light, then koinonia we have with one another. It's a reality. And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's a present reality. It's a present reality. The evidence that God is at work in your life is that you will continue to abide in the light. It's that simple. To the degree that you are continuing to walk in the light, you can have a reasonable measure of assurance that your faith is genuine. God is at work in your life. That's what the Word of God says, right? So how about the second error? uh, What I call profession without perception in verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, he says we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, professing you are not a sinner would be a horribly mistaken claim. Uh, the error here is that this person denies any sort of personal guilt. They're like a Teflon pan. It, it, just, it just doesn't stick to them, right? They don't accept Personal guilt. They they say they don't have a sin nature. Uh, John says emphatically, uh, again in the original language, ourselves we deceive, and the truth is not in us. Uh, we're not deceiving anybody out there, but uh, we are deceiving who? Deceiving ourselves if we think we don't have a sin nature. Uh, John 9.41, I guess, would be a good example of this. Uh, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, he says, uh, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Uh, Don't kid yourself. You are a sinner by nature. Now, you know, John is particularly addressing the Gnostic heresy at the time. And so you have to understand that uh, for them, they believe that matter matter, the physical world, physical plane was evil and that uh, spirit was good. And what they were saying is that their soul, uh, while their body may have been evil, their soul was technically uncontaminated by sin. Now, people say that today, though. They've updated it a little bit, but it's essentially the same thing. They say, I, I'm not a bad person. I just do what I do because I I really just need to be loved. Or, uh, I'm a victim. Or, I respond to others the way I do because of the way they treat me. I'm not technically responsible for my own actions. Everybody else is making me do what I'm doing. I'm not really a bad person. It's not who I am. Right? It's not who I am. But that's not assuming personal guilt. It's not the admission of a a sin nature. You know what? Uh, this is a case of mistaken identity, I guess, and it's, it's your own identity that's mistaken. Uh, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. That's the point. Uh, we sin as an outflow of who we are. We're sinners by nature. We can't help ourselves. But again, the assurance lies in the next verse. He says, if, and here's the reality, and it's not if you do this, it's a result that you are saved would be that you would be doing this. Um, If we confess, and again it's present active, and keep on confessing, then He is faithful and righteous that He may forgive our sins and He may cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a little question about what this means. What does it mean that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us? And the idea, basically, in a nutshell, is that God is a righteous judge. He's faithful and righteous to judge uh, properly. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then he has no reason to condemn you. And so your faith in Christ will be evidenced by continual confession of sin and walking in the light right so you know we live uh guys in the in the backwash of easy believism i mean we do i mean arminianism has swept through the church it's all you know self effort uh easy believism life doesn't have to change repentance yeah i remember when i walked the aisle that one day and i i said the sinner's prayer and now I'm, I'm done and I'm secure and I'm safe. And, and so uh, we're supposed to try to keep pulling you back to that day when you made that profession of faith and hold you to it. And the reality is uh, repentance is not a one-time thing. Confession is daily, all the time, every day. It's, it's continually confessing, present active, confessing and keep on confessing, confessing, uh, it's not something believers should do once. I remember back in 1964 when I confessed my sin and uh, trusted in Christ, and so I've been saved ever since then. But I've cheated on my wife, you know, 20 million times, and or I've uh, stolen from my employer, or I'm not attending a church currently uh, because I don't like other believers; they're all hypocritical. And well, how is that possible? How is that possible? Isn't the whole goal? Fellowship, right? Fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. So, what is true repentance? Well, there's really three things involved in true repentance. It's a it's a change in thinking concerning sin. Uh, it's the idea of a of a change of opinion about what sin is in and of itself. It's it's thinking differently about it, and then it's a feeling. Emotionally ruined about it, Uh, there's the idea of feelings involved, and this is sorrow, this is remorse, this is regret uh, over the sin because God hates it and because it's ugly. Um, And third is a redirection of your will. Uh, You have to will yourself to do something different. And so uh, true repentance involves more than just... uh, Gee, God, I'm real sorry I did that. It's uh, thinking about it differently, it's feeling about it differently, and it's turning from it. Um, you feel defiled, you feel gross. You've got to get away from the sin, you've got to flee it, and you've got to flee to the righteousness of Christ. That's repentance. Worship of the old evil thing goes away, and worship of Christ replaces it. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10, the Apostle Paul talks about it there, right? And he he says that uh, you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, right? It wasn't just, it wasn't just that you were sorry according to the world, but that you were sorry according to the will of God. The sorrow led to something. It wasn't just sorrow over the consequences of your guilt. It, it, it led to a change of behavior. So Continual confession is a, is a sign that God is at work in you. And if you are continually confessing and repenting, then you can have a measure of assurance that what? That you're saved. Right? You don't need to beat yourself up. You don't need to continue to feel like, oh, you know, how could God want me? I'm such a miserable person. Well, you are, but he does. <laughs> He does. That's grace. The third error is what I call profession without possession, and uh, really verses one ten to two two here on this. You know, if we say that we have not sinned, uh, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And this is an unfortunate chapter break because if you continue the grammatical structures of the apodosis or the protasis and the apodosis, like I was telling you, it carries you through into chapter 2 and verse 2. But essentially, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, and here it is, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is their assurance again. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. <clears throat> so this person or this error basically professes that sin is, is not really a reality in their life. I, I don't have any sin. Uh, the verb here, I have not sinned, is a, is a perfect verb, and it's different than verse 8. Uh, you see verse 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, and then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, there are different verb tenses here. In verse 8, the idea is uh, that I don't have sin. And in verse 10, the idea is uh, not to have been sinning. Uh, I don't have ongoing sin in my life, is the idea. Uh, one says we don't have a sin in nature, the other says we don't sin. And both are emphatically false claims. Those would be false, those would be a misunderstanding. So don't make that error. It's interesting, John says, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And you have to ask yourself a question, how is it possible to make God a liar? How can we do that? And I think the rationale here is that if there were no sins of which to repent, then God's promise of forgiveness would be a lie. The way of salvation assumes that all men are sinners. Uh, Those who deny such sin say, in effect, that God has lied to mankind in His Word. So we would not want to say that, right? The the reality is, uh, for, for a person to make such a claim would be to deny everything that the Word of God teaches in this regard, right? Everything regarding soteriology would be a lie. The way of salvation. Uh, We do sin, beloved, and we do need a Savior in a big way. Right? To deny this reality is to deny the faith. And and thus, this is why I say it would be profession without possession. You don't own it. But the assurance comes in verse 1 of chapter 2. If anyone sins... And it's not if you do, it's when you do, (laughs) Uh, when anyone sins, uh, then what? Well, what's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Then we have Jesus again, right? Look at these three statements. Uh, I mean, the first one, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins, right? That's our assurance. Uh, Verse 9. Um, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The answer is Jesus again. And here in two uh, one, what 's the answer to our problems? Jesus, right it 's the Sunday school answer it 's that simple. If you want assurance it 's found in the answer to the problem of sin, which is Jesus. Jesus Himself uh, is our propitiation. So those who acknowledge their sin and confess it, they have an advocate. They have a somebody to plead their case with the Father. The advocate is the very one who satisfied the wrath of God. It is Jesus Christ, the only righteous person to ever walked this earth. Right. So think about this with me. You know, a, a person could be, they could be dying of cancer, right? And they could deny they have cancer. Uh, they could refuse treatment for the cancer. But does it change the reality that they have cancer? No, it doesn't. I mean, they need the treatment, or else they will die from the cancer. The same is true. Sin is a problem whether you admit it or not. You're a sinner, and there's no escaping that fact. You need a Savior, and the only Savior to be found is Jesus Christ the righteous. So to deny that we have sinned or that we have a sin nature or uh, to walk around in the darkness and say we have fellowship with God is to deny the reality of sin and the fact that we need a Savior. All of these would be false professions. They would be errors. They would be mistakes. But look at the tremendous assurance that we can have as believers in these truths, right? I don't know about you, but I read this and I am encouraged this morning in the saving power of Christ. Let me just say the third and final element of walking in the light is is the proof and uh, there's really two of them there's really two proofs if you will so so how do we know that we know that we know right? Isn't that the question? Uh, how can we really be assured that we are saved? Well there are really two things that should characterize your life as a believer Uh two evidences that you know God, two proofs that you are walking in the light, however you want to say it, they're evidence. They're not self-effort. They're evidence. But they are obedience and imitation. Uh, At this point, I need to walk you through a few statements. Look at John chapter 2, verse 3. You see this phrase here? By this we know. Right? By this we know. Drop down to verse 5. Second half. By this we know. Verse four, uh, chapter four, verse six. These are direct statements that's littered throughout the book, phrased differently. But this is a direct statement. By this we know. Right. Uh, you could go over to uh, chapter three, verse nineteen. You see it in a little different. Uh, Form there we will know by this that we are of the truth right and we will assure our hearts before God So it's littered throughout the book. I'm just looking at the direct statements here, but you see also in uh, verse 13 By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit And then all of that you look over at chapter 5 verse 13 and you get the reason why he wrote this book These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, know for sure that you have eternal life. This book is about assurance. You know, and I thought when I was, I initially thought, well, I'm going to preach it like three tests to evaluate whether or not you're really saved. And I thought, you know what? That's how unfair of me to do that. This book is all about assurance. It is all about knowing that you know God. And beloved, I I want to bring you that same assurance. It's the reason John wrote this epistle. And the first evidence of that is obedience. You see that in chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 there. By this we know that we have come to know Him. Right? If we do what? If we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, we know. The one who says, I have come to know him, is just a reiteration of what we've already looked at, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we have come to know him. You know, we've talked about obedience so much already. I don't want to continue to beat a dead horse, but to the degree that you are walking and keep walking in obedience to the revealed will of God, you can have assurance that you are saved. Right? In other words, you have to finish well. You have to finish well. The, the danger with this uh, doctrine and the reason I think it doesn't get preached all that much <laughs> Is because uh, Thomas Brooks said, Assurance made David divinely fearless and divinely careless. Uh, you can get a little cocky and forget who you're dealing with, right? Uh, and, and really blow it. Uh, assurance is a great thing, and I think we all need it. Uh, that's why I'm preaching on it. But there is a danger associated with it, and that is you could get careless. You could get careless. Of course, an unbeliever, you know, they might try to obey without the change of heart, right? So you might see some external conformity. You might see somebody trying to walk in obedience, but you know what happens with that person? Is sin becomes more inflamed in their soul. And over time, they can't hold the beast back anymore. And so they try to keep some external restraint or some measured resistance to their flesh or they try to keep the law without having a change of heart, and they just can't do it. And so they implode or explode, but either way their life will fall apart. A, a true change has to come at the heart level. A person who only changes externally uh, its nothing more than a new paint job on an old jalopy. But not so with the genuine believer, right? Assurance is derived from what one writer called a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. You complete the race well. You finish the course. You run the race with endurance. And ultimately, God's promise not to lose us is what we're banking on. Right? God's promise saves and he saves forever. And so what we're really banking on is his saving power. When we talk about assurance in obedience and such, what we're talking about is evidence that he is in the process of saving us. It's a result of his saving work in our lives. Uh, He's in the process, said another way, of not losing us. He's in the process of keeping us. And that's evidenced in our walk of faith. The two go hand in hand. Ernest Reisinger wrote a book called What Should We Think of the Carnal Christian? That's kind of a really ridiculous... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, oxymoron, thank you. That is an oxymoron, isn't it? A carnal Christian? Do you think... You know what carne is? It's flesh. It's Latin for flesh. And so, uh, carne asada, for those of you who like carne asada, <laughs> you're eating barbecued animal flesh. Chili con carne is chili with flesh. That's pleasant. But... uh Where's I going with that anyway? (laughs) Yeah, just uh, subduing the flesh gets us nowhere, right? Ernest Reisinger, uh, in his book there, he says, It is clear that obedience is intimately related to assurance. If we do not live and practice righteousness, we have no reason to think that we are born of God. Seems pretty plain to me. I don't think I could really say it any better. Uh, One of the evidences that you know God, one of the proofs, is that you're walking in obedience to his revealed will. The second evidence or proof is imitation. And you see this over here um, in the second half of verse 5. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's pretty plain, right? If you're going to make that profession, if you're going to say, by this, we know that we're in him, uh, the one who says he abides in him, you darn well better be walking the way Christ walked. Otherwise, what? It's an inconsistency. It makes no sense at all. The he there, by the way, is Christ. In him. So, how did Christ walk? Self sacrificing love, right? Humility, obedience to the Father's will. Christ was, in a sense, the ultimate spirit-filled man. And so we would want to imitate him. To the degree that you desire to imitate your Savior and actually do it uh, in self-sacrificing love and humility, then I think you can have a measure of assurance that you are saved. Turn to Ephesians uh, chapter five, if you will, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Chapter five, verse one of Ephesians, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walking. There's that phrase walking again. Living, conducting yourself in love as Christ loved you. By the way, that comes right off of chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. This whole series of repentance about right what to put off and how to renew your mind and what to put on in its place starting in verse uh, 22 and running through to the end of chapter 4 you know you you put off anger and you and you put on meditation why because if you don't you give the devil an opportunity right you uh, speak truth to one another you don't lie verse 25 uh, we're members of one another. That's the reason why. Uh, verse 29, uh, not letting unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only words that edify one another. Uh, why? Uh, because if you don't, verse 30, you'll grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And then verses 31 and 32 in particular, uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Well, it wasn't just that Christ died for your sins to atone for them, but in Christ's death, he also turned away the wrath of God. And so, what Paul is saying here, the implication of that is that uh, as believers, we cannot hold wrath against our brothers. We cannot continue to hate. That's going to be where John is going to go in the rest of this epistle. When he talks about walking in love in 1 John, he means corporate context, not... uh, He's talking in particular about walking in the light so we have fellowship with each other, walking in truth so we have fellowship with each other, and walking in love so we have fellowship with each other. And so we're not... A person who says he knows God can't hate his brother. How can you say you love God and yet hate your brother who's made in his image? How can you do that? How can you say you know God and lie and not do the truth? How can you say you know God and yet walk in darkness? All of these things would be inconsistencies because of who God is. And that's John's whole argument here. Walking in love is... Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice, walking in love with your brethren, imitating God, mimicking him, is the idea here. And God forgave us in his Son. He turned away his wrath from us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the disposition and inclination we should have. It should be imitating the love of God. Jonathan Edwards said this, and I don't think I could really say this any better than he did, so I'll just read his quote here. He said, "'Tis not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption, increasing in grace, and obtaining the lively exercise of it. And although self-examination be a duty of great use and importance, and by no means to be neglected,' Yet it is not the principal means by which the saints do get satisfaction of their good estate. Assurance is not obtained so much by self-examination as by action. Amen. Amen. You want assurance this morning? Walk in the light. Walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Obedience and imitation. Two proofs that you're walking in the light. Let me just uh, say this. You know, why is this doctrine of assurance so important? Why is it of such vital importance? Uh, Because I believe it gives us confidence to stay in the fight. I think it gives us confidence to stay in the fight. And I think we all need confidence. Not self-confidence, but God-confidence, if I could say it that way. Assurance, uh, an unknown Puritan writer, I I didn't get the name on this, but he said assurance will assist us in all duties. It will arm us against all temptations. It will answer all objections. It will sustain us in all conditions. I couldn't agree more. So my hope is this morning that you're going to walk out of here with a greater sense of assurance that yes, I am saved, Yes, God is at work in my life. I can look at it and I can see God's work in my life. I am being held by the saving power of Jesus Christ. That you'll be strengthened in your walk of faith. That you will rest in the assurance that God has you and will not let you go. You know, if you can look at your life and you can see your conduct as a believer lines up with that, then I rejoice with you this morning. Rejoice in your salvation. It is a great gift of God. However, if your assurance has been rocked, if it's been weakened, if you're walking away from here thinking, wow, I am so far from this. I am not walking in the light. I am living a lie. Then I think we probably need to talk. If your life is filled with hypocrisy and sin, then we probably do need to talk. See, there's a, there's a difference between doing these things out of some sort of self-effort to try to make yourself right with God versus them being evidence that you know Him. you understand the difference? There's, there's self-effort, and then there's these things are self-evident. You should know the difference. If you're trying to do, uh, trying to keep playing at religion, so that you can somehow gain a relationship with God, then you've gone off the tracks somewhere. You, you've missed the boat. If you're saved, these things will be true of your life, and you can have the assurance that God is at work. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are light, and and Father, that in You there is no darkness at all. We thank You for drawing us to that light, our Father, out of this very dark world. We thank You for rescuing us from our own sin and for imparting within us the Word of God and Your Spirit that enables us, our Father, to continue to walk in the light. And, oh, Father, how we want to continue to walk in the light, and to be like Christ. We want to imitate. We want to obey. We want to follow you, our Father, as beloved children. And so, please, be at work in our lives. Help us to walk out of here this morning with full assurance that you are at work in our lives. Our Father, if that not be the case, may your Spirit overwhelm us with conviction. May we feel the full weight of our broken relationship with you. May we confess and keep on confessing and may we seek refuge in the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Our Father, all these things are for His sake. Amen.